Good morning. Our scripture reading today is Acts 1, 2 through 11. Before he was taken up, working in the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus instructed the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed them that he was alive with many convincing proofs. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, speaking to them about God's kingdom. While they were eating together, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but wait for what the Father had promised. He said, this is what you heard from me. John baptized with water, but, but in only a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. As a result, those who gathered together asked Jesus, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? Jesus replied, it isn't for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has set by his own authority. Rather, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. After Jesus said these things, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going away, and as they were staring toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood next to them. They said, Galileans, why are you standing here looking toward heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. Amen. You may be seated. Would you pray with me as we get rolling? We're continuing to roll. Jesus, thank you so much for the folks who are here, the folks who are watching online. God, as we sing today and as we gather at the table and as we hear your story proclaimed, would it serve as an invitation to us? An invitation to participate in the goodness of you, an invitation to participate in your story, an invitation to know ourselves as loved, an invitation to come to the table and sit with you. And as we hear that invitation offered again and again, and as we respond to it as a people, would it form us into a people like you who are invitational in our very nature? who are sent from this moment out into the world to live and practice and proclaim our faith in a way that gives light to hope and invites the world to know and experience the goodness of you too. You gotta give me the words to say. Help us to hear you and experience you this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome everybody once again. My name is Johnny Morrison. I am one of your pastors here. It's so good to be with you. Uh, We are today wrapping up a series that we've been in for the last five weeks entitled The Missio Dei. The Missio Dei, that's our namesake, but it means the mission of God. And as we've been talking about the Missio Dei or the mission of God, what we've been trying to do and what we've been hoping to do as a community is to talk about our identity talk about our culture, talk about our vision, talk about our practices as a local embodied church. And at the end of the day, all of this conversation that we've been having is rooted in the belief that God is on mission. That's the Missio Dei, that God is up to something in the world around us. And the way that Missio articulates that is to say that God is on a mission to bring about the renewal of all things. And the reason that is so important for us and the reason we say it's the root of all things and the reason we say it's our 
foundation is because we believe that God is already at work in the world around us, that God is ahead of us, before us, in us, and around us. And as the church and as the people of Jesus, it is not our job to manufacture God's movement in the world around us. It's not our job to take on that responsibility alone as though we are somehow responsible for the whole mission of God. Instead, we believe that God is already up to something, that God is on the move ahead of us and before us, bringing God's kingdom, establishing renewal. And our invitation is not to manufacture that or to force that or to carry a responsibility that is not ours to carry. Instead, it's to pay attention, to see what God is up to and to join the thing that God is already doing in us and around us. In the last couple of weeks, what we've done is explore different practices that help us to join God's work around us. So we believe that God is on the move. We believe that God is up to something in the world around us. And the question then becomes, well, what do we do with that information? How do we participate? And the way we do is through practices. Practices are not solutions. They're not like manufactured programs that always work the same way in every instance. Instead, practices are about postures or approaches that help us align ourselves with what God is doing around us so that we could pay attention and participate. One of the ways that we've talked about it is that practices are like the work of tending to a garden. You don't make a garden grow. You don't force it into existence. You literally can't. And when you do use pesticides or hormones, you often compromise the like, sanctity of the garden. And so instead, you plant and then you tend to the garden. You watch it, you pay attention, you weed, you water. But something is happening under the surface of the soil that is beyond your control. Jesus says the kingdom is like that. It's like mustard seeds that have already been planted and are beginning to sprout up amongst you. And your job is to tend, pay attention, cultivate, but you don't make it grow. And so practices are like that. They are ways in which we help curate, cultivate, tend to what God is doing around us. And we've looked at four practices so far. We started with the practice of explore, which is the practice of paying attention, hearing what God is doing, joining the thing that God is doing. Then we talked about gathering, which is the practice of being united by Jesus around the table made one people sharing this huge commonality in Jesus, despite the fact that we often share nothing else. We talked about the practice of welcome, which is receiving and being received like Jesus, extending the offer that God offers to us into the world around us. Last week, Heather talked about the practice of creation, which is using the innate gifts and abilities that we have as image bearers to make good of the world around us, like God does, whether that's like families or omelets or businesses or barbecues, it's us participating in the thing that God is doing, extending goodness around us. Now today we're going to look at our final practice. This is the last week of the series, and we're going to look at our final practice, and it's the practice of inviting. The practice of inviting. And I was trying to think of like a a pithy definition for the practice of inviting, and I was really struggling to do it. So I went and looked at a sermon that I had given uh, two years ago on the practice of inviting, and I was like, maybe I gave a pithy definition once before, 
and I did not. Um, I would like to read you this mouthful from two years ago. This is a moment to dunk on myself. Here's how I defined inviting two years ago. This is what I said. The practice of inviting is the practice of making present and accessible God's offering of a new kingdom to the world around us. True, but a mouthful. So I've been kind of struggling to think about how to define inviting. And so instead, what I want to do is try to show you what the practice of inviting looks like. And that actually might be the best definition of inviting, to show, to show our faith, to live our faith, to proclaim our faith in our body and practices and proclamation. But I think the best way to give us a sense of what inviting is, is just to show it to you. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to do little Bible bits, talk about Jesus, uh, and then at the end of the sermon, I'm going to tell a few stories that for me are invitational. They're moments where I see people inviting and they're stories that also help me understand what inviting looks like. And hopefully between those two, we'll get a sense of what it is that God is up to and what it looks like for us to participate. So let's start in Acts chapter 1. It's the text that Jordan read for us this morning. And in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is with his disciples. And this moment comes right after the resurrection, but before the ascension. And like the church calendar, this is referred to as Eastertide. And it's this kind of like short 40-day period of time where Jesus is with the disciples, teaching and instructing before he ascends and before Pentecost. We often look over this moment because it just gets one chapter in the book of Acts and everything is devoted to what comes after But in this 40-day period, Jesus is with his disciples, and this is what it says. It says, Jesus appeared to the disciples over a period of 40 days, speaking to them about God's kingdom. And while they were eating together, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. He said, this is what you heard from me. In only a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So in this brief intervention, this moment in between resurrection and ascension and Pentecost, Jesus is teaching the disciples about his work and about the coming spirit. You could say in many ways that this conversation Jesus is having is the same conversation that we've been having over the last couple of weeks. It's the declaration that God is on the move, that God is doing something in the universe around us. And Jesus' favorite language to describe what God is doing is kingdom. This language that describes rule and reign and people and society. It's a word to to emphasize maybe the social reality of God's renewal, that something social and huge and cosmic is happening. So God is teaching that the kingdom is at hand, and in just a few days you'll be filled with the Spirit and empowered to participate in this kingdom work. So it's the same conversation, the same kind of conversation that we've been having. The kingdom is here, it's at work, and you've been invited. But there is an interesting tension in the words that Jesus says in this moment. He's teaching them about the kingdom, and as he's doing that, the disciples ask him, Lord, does that mean the kingdom is going to be now? Are you going to restore the kingdom in this moment? Like, is that the thing that you're telling us? That that Israel will be restored? That the world will be fixed? That renewal will be tangible in all its full 
forms and complexities? Is it, is it happening right now? To which Jesus responds, shh. <laughs> Doesn't answer the question. He says, wait in Jerusalem and I will fill you with my spirit and I will make you witnesses. And today's an interesting day to talk about this tension, this question, because today in the church calendar is what we refer to as Christ the King Sunday. And I don't know how many of you uh, participate in the liturgical calendar or how many of you think of yourself as ancient church history fans. Uh, I'm assuming everybody because you're here. But in the church calendar, the year technically ends today on Christ our King Sunday. And then Advent, which happens next week, starts the beginning of the church calendar. And the the reason is formational and narrative. The idea is that our story is in God's story, that we have a part in God's story, and we see the world in a different way. And so our year begins at the Advent and incarnation of Jesus, and it ends in the culmination of Jesus' kingdom when he is declared king of the universe. And we do it every single year, and the idea behind it is that every single year we remember that Jesus is king, is enthroned, that the kingdom is at work, but it also comes at the end of the calendar because we recognize that, yes, but. The kingdom is begun, but it is not finished, and so we have to keep celebrating and keep remembering and keep telling the story. And yes, it's been inaugurated, but it has not yet been culminated, and so we live in this kind of tension, what sometimes theologians will call the tension of the already not yet kingdom. That we, as followers of Jesus, we live in two time zones, so to say. The time of the kingdom's fulfillment and also the time of now, when it is begun and not yet finished. And we hold in our stories and in our lives and in our families and in our bodies the tension of that reality. We know something good has begun, yet we can see so clearly that it is not yet finished. We know the story is beautiful and hopeful and amazing and coming into fruition and yet recognize that doesn't always touch our bodies or our families or our communities in its fullness. And so we as a people, we live already, not yet, in the tension of two time zones, in the tension of two kingdoms, so to say. When we ask Jesus, is this the moment he's going to restore the kingdom? He says, Shh, just wait a second. And so what is our job as people who live in between these two moments? The good news being proclaimed and it being finished. And to this, Jesus responds to us and the disciples saying, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has set by his own authority. Rather, instead of knowing, instead of having a deep sense of certainty about what's going to happen or when it's going to happen or how it's going to happen, rather than that, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, even to Salt Lake City. Instead of answering the question when Jesus says, here's a vocation, to be witnesses to something. What does it mean to be witnesses? I think for a lot of us, 
you grew up in religious context or grew up in church context, my guess is when you hear the language of witness, your first thought is something like evangelism, witnessing your faith or sharing your faith, which I think is actually a helpful impulse because they're really closely connected. Even in the Greek, the two ideas are really closely connected. The word evangelism comes from the Greek phrase euangelion, which means good news. And often it was used to talk about proclaiming good news. You would euangelizo, proclaim good news. But good news in this instance is like really big good news. Like a war has been one kind of good news. A king is returning home kind of good news. It's the kind of good news that Jesus is telling his disciples about in Acts chapter 1, that the kingdom is arriving, that it is in the world, that it is at hand, even if it is not yet finished. It's that kind of good news. And so to evangelize would be to proclaim, to tell like a journalist or a witness to something, to proclaim that good news. And then in likewise, the word witness comes from the Greek word martus, which you probably can recognize pretty quickly, sounds like martyr. Now again, when you hear the word martyr, there's probably a lot of ideas that come to your head immediately. When we think about a martyr, we often think about people who have died for their faith, and that is included. But martyr does not focus on death. Martyrdom and witnessing actually focuses on life. To be a witness or to be a martyr is to be someone who lives for something. And so we take these two ideas, this idea of to proclaim good news, that the kingdom is coming, and this idea of martyr or witness or living for something. I think what Jesus is inviting his disciples into in this moment is to live the good news now. To be a witness to a kingdom that is arriving is to be a people who live the arrival here. It is to be a people who see what is possible on the horizon and begin to practice it and play it and embody it and enflesh it in this world and in this moment now. The Apostle Paul says something similar in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. Paul says, we, church, we are ambassadors. We are ambassadors of Jesus as though God were making his appeal through us. The political function of an ambassador is to represent another kingdom in another place. And yes, through what you say, and yes, through what you do, but if you ever go to an embassy, the embassy actually follows the rules of the nation that sent it. It lives as though it's still within the nation that sent it. If you're an American embassy, you live according to American customs in that embassy. The laws of America actually apply in that embassy. And in the same way, when Paul says you are an ambassador, you live another kingdom. You embody another world. So to witness or to invite, it is to show the world, including ourselves, the hope of God's renewal here and now. Now that's a bit ethereal, I will admit. So how do we witness to God's future work here and now? I think very simply, we practice our faith. 
One of my favorite theologians, Stanley Hauerwas, says it this way, which I think is really helpful. He says, the needed incentive, not just to entertain, but to live Christian conviction, requires the display of a habitable world exemplified in the life of a Christian community. What he means by that is we need to see our faith lived. We need to see it embodied. We need to see it in flesh. And when we do, it starts to compel us into something. As the kingdom is displayed in the life of a Christian community, it becomes real to us. And so you could say that all the practices that we've talked about so far in this series are invitational. They all invite us into something. As we gather, we declare that we have been united in Christ, that we have been invited together into something bigger and bolder than we are. And as we gather together, we declare something to the world around us about what we've been invited into. As we welcome one another, we are literally receiving an invitation. As we explore, we are receiving the invitation of God all around us in the world. As we create goodness, we are inviting others to taste and to see. We invite through practicing our faith. And it's easy to talk about this in a sense that distances this from ourselves. What I mean by that is it's really easy to talk about inviting as though we are inviting the world into something. And that's true, and that's right, and that's good. But as I've been prepping this sermon all week, the thing that was feeling most important to talk about is that we ourselves, the people who are in this room, need to experience the invitation of Jesus. We need to be invited into something through the shared and communal practice of our faith together. We need to see faith displayed through each other's practices. Because when we don't, I think something happens to us, or a few things can happen. If I think, if we don't see our faith displayed and practiced, I think two things can begin to happen to us. I think one is that our faith can metastasize into some kind of spiritual cynicism. What I mean by that is, is we have these beliefs that never get enfleshed around us, and it just leads to this like cynicism in us that God doesn't do things, that God's not moving, that the world doesn't change, that people don't grow, that no one heals, that life is stagnant. And that can kind of metastasize in us where we still stay in religious communities, cynical, or I think it can lead to a full deconstruction of our own faith because we never see anything grow or life emerge from our faith. It's like you're like looking at a garden and you don't see anything grow. It's pretty frustrating. So I think there's a kind of cynicism that can happen to us when our faith is not displayed. And on the other side, I think that there is also a kind of defensiveness that can happen to us when we never see our faith lived. We never see anything grow in the garden. It can be easy to believe that that's because the garden is under some kind of attack. And so we build higher walls and we construct our faith even thicker and stronger to protect ourselves from others because we've not seen anything happening in our lives. And I've been wondering if this is why the writer James has his very famous moment in the letter that he writes to the church where he says this, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? 
In the same way, faith by itself that is not accompanied by action is dead. We often think about this verse and it gets pulled into debates about like salvation and what kind of faith saves us and do we earn our way into heaven. And, I, and I've been wondering if James is not actually concerned about any of those things because he knows that you belong to God regardless of what you do. And if the question that James is asking is what happens to our own faith and our own lives when it never gets lived and practiced. Faith is like a muscle, and if it doesn't get moved, it tends to suffer under absence and lack of movement. Faith has this need to grow and to be actualized and to be moved. But when it doesn't get lived, I think it produces defensiveness or cynicism, and it often dies in us because it never got a chance to touch and see what was happening around it. There's a thing we do here at Missio called Change Groups, and I think the first book that we ever used doing change groups had a tagline that said, Risk Brings Change. And I've always thought about that as the like, unofficial slogan of change groups. It's never been the official slogan, but I just say that it is. And I love that phrase that risk brings change because the idea is that small steps in a direction have a way of undermining cynicism. They have an, a way of undermining stagnation. They have a way of, of like busting us into a new imagination because as we take small steps, we get to see something happen around us. And I think in the same way, faith needs small risks and small steps to undermine our cynicism so that it might get its hands a bit dirty, that it might get lived a bit in the world around us, so that it might see it can grow and develop. There's this quote from philosopher James Smith that I think expresses this really, really well. He says, When we recognize that the Spirit is afoot and on the move, and we by grace are invited to join and therefore be transformed and be a part of the unfolding transformation. When we start to take steps in the work of the Spirit, we are invited to both be transformed and to experience the unfolding transformation of the Spirit. We are transformed as we take small steps. As we gather together, we get to see what happens when people gather together. And it may not look all that magnificent on the surface, except that God promised to use our gatherings to do something beyond us, and we get to see it as we sit with one another. As we pay attention to what God is doing in the work around us, we get to see it. We never see it because we don't pay attention, but as we pay attention, we get to see it and are invited to participate. As we create, God works in and through us, in us, to create a bigger imagination for what God might do in that moment. When we risk in faith, I think it produces hope. An imagination for the kingdom that is hard for us to get our mind around if we're just sitting alone or dreaming or imagining. I think that's why the writer of Hebrews describes faith as faith is the substance of things hoped for. Substance is a very fun uh, King James word. I don't know what it means. It's like the stuff. The stuff of faith is hope. It's the 
tangibility, the materiality of faith is the hope that we experience in practice and in living together and in working this thing out. The people who are invitational are a people who practice hope. Who live this second time zone, this kingdom that is coming right here, right now. Who display a possible world through our practice and shared life together. So that's the what, I think, of being an invitational people. But now I just want to tell you a couple of stories that I think make this way more practical. And the first one is this. There was a woman who was attending, she's still dense here, attending Missio for a couple of years. And I asked her permission to tell this story, but I'm not going to use their names. And she had come from a particularly disorienting faith tradition. She'd grown up in a faith tradition that felt disorienting and dislocating, and she left that faith tradition kind of just searching out what was going on on her own, and then through some friends began to explore Missio. And as she was here, she met another couple who had a very similar history, a similar kind of disorienting faith tradition. And so as they met, they began to share life together. A couple invited her over to their home. They began to do dinners together. They began to do meals together. They started doing house church together. And this relationship continued for many years. And then uh, maybe a year ago, I was sitting with this woman and just asking her how she was feeling and what was going on with her journey. And she was like, you know, there's a lot of things I don't understand yet about faith and about this thing we're doing here. But I'll never forget what she said. She's like, but you know the thing I do know? She said, I belong to Jesus and his people. I was like, what a wild thing for someone to be able to say through the invitation and extension of very simple, very profound Christian practices. That as they would gather at a meal together and share lives together, the story that it would proclaim is that oh, we belong to Jesus. We don't know the answers to all the questions that we're working out. And we don't understand all the complexities of the things that we're naming. But you know what we do know? We've been invited to belong here. The second story I want to tell you uh, is, uh, well, it's kind of about me. Um, <laughs> I don't know why I said it that way. Uh, this year, I published a book. It's my first one. Thank you. And, uh, you know, people say whenever you do something creative that you could never have done it alone. And that is not a cliche, right? Like, that's deeply true. I started working on the project in 2016 and then uh, just hated myself for about four years of it until it finally came out into the universe. And that project could not have happened alone and the reason I'm telling you this is because throughout that journey, there was people in my life who saw what was possible when I did not. Who saw what could happen if someone who had creative energies devoted it to something, what might happen through that work. And the, and the primary person is, is I, that I want to tell you about is Heather. And I, I've told this kind of story before, but Heather has all these people in her life who are successful authors, creatives. And we were talking about this one day, and it hit me that the common denominator in all of those people is Heather. 
Like there's all these people who do amazing things. And I was like, oh, I think that's in large part because you help them do it. You see a universe in which this creative project has been birthed into the world and then you speak it over them. You encourage them, you invite them into something, and the more and more that they get to encounter this encouragement, this invitation, the more this kingdom, this thing that God has promised, the more it starts to feel possible, tangible. Like it might actually break into the world around us. Like you might actually finish that project. You might actually finish that moment. You might have that hard conversation. You might take that risk in faith towards wholeness and healing. And the more that you are encouraged and invited into it, the more it starts to feel like it really could happen. Which then expands my willingness to take the risk and to make it possible. Sometimes invitation is welcoming someone into your home to share stories and to tell life and to navigate disorienting experiences. And sometimes invitation is sitting with someone and saying, you see what is possible in their life. It's speaking words of truth and hope and gospel over them when it is difficult for them to see that themselves. Here's the third story I'll tell. Maybe we'll close up here. I had like a list and I was like, who knows? The third story, I've told this one a bunch too, but uh, my friend Haley Burke, who's in the sound booth right now, she taught me and our whole house church what it means to do table life together. We talk about table a lot here, and I feel like all of that is because of the invitation of Haley Burke. I didn't cook before knowing Haley, and now, like, I cook all the time. And that's not really that important, but I just wanted to share it with you. What is important, though, is, is when we started doing house church together, Haley would just occasionally be like, hey, we're going to do a dinner. And would be like, great. And so we'd go over to her house or wherever she was living at the time, and she would lay the table, and it would be beautiful, and it would be drinks, and she wouldn't let anybody bring anything. If you know her, you're like, yeah, that checks out. And she would have all the food ready. And it was like the most compelling experience. Just to be like, do dinner with people who love you and to have this moment shared with you. And what it began to do in us is create an imagination for what we could do at our own dinner tables, in our own homes, in our own lives. And so all of a sudden, not only would people invite everyone they knew to Haley's dinners, but then they would start throwing their own dinner parties, inviting their friends and their neighbors and their coworkers, because we started to taste and to see that something possible happened when we all gathered at a table together believing that Jesus met us in that same space. And the more that we tasted and saw it and experienced it, the more it became real in us and the more it felt possible for us to do that same thing in our own world. And so the more we did and the more we extended it into the world around us. And those dinner parties became places where Difficult conversations, beautiful conversations, life-giving moments began to emerge. But it was, for us, the moment where theology and practice met. We're like, oh, this is what's possible when we gather together. I like these three stories because they are so simple. Like, they're so possible. They're words of encouragement. They're like a lunch after church, and they're a Tuesday night dinner. 
They're so simple. They're so feasible. And yet the more that we get our hands on these expressions and these kinds of practices, the more we get to see hope alive. The more we get to see the kingdom emerging, the more we get to see this possible future that God is establishing break into the world around us. Through the simple, ordinary, beautiful expressions of the kingdom. And so, Monsieur, what if we practiced our faith that way? What might be birthing in us that wants to be expressed? What possible might we see? What tangibility might begin to emerge? As you think about that question, I just have three more that I'm going to ask you, and then we'll gather at this table. And these three questions are just meant to be uh, kind of ways to continue telling stories about moments you've been invited, about moments you've experienced invitation, and about moments where you could start to practice inviting. The first question is this. When have you known yourself to be invited? So I told stories about Heather and about Haley, about my friend who was invited into somebody else's home. When have you had a similar experience? I think for me it's helpful to think about these similar moments because they start to like shape my thinking and my imagination for what invitation can look like. Number two, in light of the stories that we've told or in light of the way that you've been invited, is there a way that you can invite just this week? Is there someone you can speak encouragement over? Is there a story you can tell? Is there a dinner you can host? Is there a place you need to go? And then finally, will you today respond to Jesus' invitation? Every week we gather at this table because we believe again and again and again we are invited to Jesus' table. His story, his songs, his moment, each of them remember, remind us that God has invited us into his work, invited us into his life. And so, Monsieur, as you gather at this table, would you bring these questions with you and would they begin to shape you into a person and a people that practice the invitation of Jesus? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your invitational work to us. That you entered the world and in your life and in your body and in your story and in your healings and in your communities, you demonstrated the kingdom. What it could be, what it might look like. And so today, as we practice with you, as we gather at this table, as we sing, we start to create something in us, a sense of what could be. And as we leave here, we not leave thinking that's a future that waits, but that it's actually one that can be possible in us and with us and through us now because of the work that you're doing. God, we pray these things in your name. Amen.